If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before we go into the next interview as well, um, probably an interesting thing to mention is the Gits. And the mm-hmm. Gits were a Northwest, effect- effectively, I think they were from Ohio, right? But um, they were a Northwest band and they were releasing it on Sub Pop. The main front woman in the gits was uh, Mia Zapata, and if you know that name, um, it's because it's associated with tragedy. So, like in '93, uh, Mia Zapata had been at the place called the Comet Tavern. Oh yeah, I've heard about this. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, she had left, and she was raped and murdered mm-hmm. brutally just in an alleyway near near the venue. This case was open for like like nearly a decade, like because they, they they couldn't get any information on the person that had done it. And what was happening was there were fundraisers, there were like there were all kinds of different incentives, concerts, albums. I think Everclear's first album was dedicated to me as a part. Of, there were all kinds of mentions and different sleeve notes. Percentage. Home Alive was the organisation that it was. Yeah, that's right, Home Alive. Yeah, and so there were all kinds of things to try and keep that case open because there needed to be some kind of satisfactory resolution it's a horrible a horrible a really sad detail of it actually the coroner like me as a part was really brutally attacked and there's no need to go into any details of it but the coroner identified her because he was a, a gets fan oh and man being at gets shows and so literally she gets wheeled in on a gurney that's, and he's like that's me as a part yeah. um so it's really interesting but after 10 years a guy called jesus methgia um who was i think a fisherman like a, a, a South American, Central American fisherman who had been living in Seattle at the time was coincidentally uh, requested to give a DNA sample I can't remember how it worked but it was only as a result of that campaign staying open and Joan Jett, coming back to Joan Jett 
she joined up with the remaining members of the Gits and performed as like Evil Stig, which mm. is like Gits Live yeah. backwards. Um, and they ended up releasing a record, which was also part of trying to keep that campaign going mm. and raise money for it. But um, and I think the Gits story and Mia Pat's story highlights is a is a just a brutal reminder of the circumstances women face. It's easy yeah. to get caught up in the sort of like you know. The qualifications of it and the, the details of it and all but is it really essential to pay four pounds instead of three pounds for a man and it's like well there's very few men getting raped and murdered by women on the way home from bars there's, mm-hmm. you know and and that's a you come kind of crashing back down to reality when you start to consider things like that let alone the fact that it was so hard to get any kind of justice yeah. from it and the fact that so many of the women involved in in that movement had experienced domestic violence sexual violence even you know familial um sexual violence uh, um, and I think that is a context that's important not to forget what you were saying about the runaways the runaways are an incredibly problematic issue now to say the least yeah. to say the least mm-hmm. yeah um, because of the allegations um, and because of Joan Jett's less than overwhelming response mm-hmm. to the suggestion that she was aware of the manager Kim having um, raped their colleague their band member yeah, it does make it difficult because you see her in the documentary and you're like, you know, especially now with that having come to light, it's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a little bit... It's also really difficult as well to kind of not get, or take over the fact as well. It's like, it's fucking Joan Jett, you know, who did also did a lot despite the fact that's obviously a problematic thing that, that happened in the runways. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit of a better taste, that. Um, it's probably a good time to go and look at something a wee bit more positive though. <laughs> so we interviewed Brea Quinn, who is one half of the punk band Braticus in Scotland, really excellent punk band, uh, alongside her sister. And Brea had a slightly more positive outlook on Riot Girl, albeit not without uh, some caveats. So we'll have a listen to that. My name is Brea, and I play guitar and sing in a two piece Riot Girl punk band called Braticus. So it's me and my sister, Ona. And she plays bass and does backing vocals. And then we play with a drum machine that we program. I suppose for Braticus, when we describe ourselves as a riot girl punk band, we use that more to describe our politics than our music. Because for us, riot girl stands for kind of punk feminism, like taking feminism and kind of spreading the message through punk and using that like that. It, rather than being like a genre thing, because I know that a lot of bands identifies Riot Girl as a genre, I think it, the political message to me is more important because I think still women are really not treated equally in the music scene because it's really still pretty bad. So I think to take the message that women should be treated equally and are as valid in the music scene, then I think, yeah, that is more important than a sound. I would say that there is quite a kind of a wide variety from the original Riot Girl bands, but a lot of them were really simple, kind of almost surfy guitar and then quite high-pitched, shouty female vocals uh, and then simple drums was the kind of main standard of Riot Girl, the Riot Girl sound. Myself, I only like a few Riot Girl bands, um, like obviously Bikini Kill and Brantmobile and I used to listen to a bit of Tribe as well. I think a lot of them, it was more about the message than the music they were playing. Maybe the reason that Riot Girl is making a ke- like more of a comeback, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, is that things like, like Kathleen Hanna is now doing 
a new project called the Julie Ruin and stuff. So people are looking into kind of Bikini Kill and how uh, how she started in music and learning about things. And then also feminism is getting more and more into the mainstream and not being such a kind of dirty word. And a lot of people, like a lot of men are now identifying as feminists and realising it's not about a lot of women hating men. Maybe even social media helps a lot. I don't really know why it skipped a generation. I know there is a lot of stigma around Riot Girl because of the way it was handled when it first, the first wave in the 90s. A lot of women of colour thought that they were kind of excluded and it wasn't really inclusive for them. So I think people took a step back from it. But now when people are coming into it again, they're like, okay, well, we're going to do it this way and we're not going to make it just for white uh, middle-class girls and kind of try and make it a better thing, but we're still with the same message at the core. I mean, obviously I wasn't there, but I know that when you think about the main kind of riot girl bands, they were all white girls. And then a lot of the people who were involved, even just like making zines and stuff, a lot of them were white. So maybe it would have been more difficult and you didn't want to feel like you were the token person of colour or something. Yeah, I don't know. But I know that a lot of people did struggle with it a lot. I personally think it's really cool for bands like Fugazi. They have the song Suggestion. Like he sings from the point of view of a woman feeling objectified and stuff. And I know a lot of girls in the Riot Girl scene thought that he was just kind of trying to make money out of a woman's struggle and things. But I think it's really important that men also talk and sing about those issues. And then people who maybe wouldn't have gone to a bikini kale gig or something but went to see Fugazi also learn about it. It was quite a difficult thing when it was starting in the 90s because a lot of people didn't fully understand it and then they did the thing where they did a media blackout and they wouldn't talk to the press so a lot of people would maybe read about it in a trashy newspaper or something and then not really have a full idea of it and then so then a lot of people wouldn't support it because they didn't know what what was going on and what it was all about so then maybe when they didn't have people behind it being like this is actually a good thing it was more difficult for people to discover it I mean for me I think that feminism is about equality for everyone and I think it would it's kind of better to make a point of women being equal instead of making men feel that they are out of place or something. But I do understand that they were trying to make a point that women were treated in kind of an unacceptable way and they were like, how would you feel if we, you had to do this and stuff? But I think the same with like the girls to the front thing where he said all women to the front and the men have to go to the back. And I think in some places where it was really macho and horrible at gigs and women were being punched and groped and stuff, I can see why that came about. And I I think it made a lot of the gigs safer spaces for women. But then I think I've been to a few gigs recently where people have tried to put that in place when men were just standing, dancing, not doing anything wrong. And then I think it just creates the wrong kind of atmosphere and it's not conveying the message that it was supposed to. So I think things like that need to be really carefully thought out before you try and make a statement like that because you just end up kind of tainting the message. The payment thing, it was... I I personally don't agree with it, but I think by charging men more than women to get into Riot Girl gigs, they were trying to make the point that women are treated not not equally so they were um 
trying to let the men see how that how that felt. But I think maybe it could have been handled in a different way because it just ended up making people feel angry about it instead of conveying a message and a point. I think the lasting kind of legacy that Riot Girl has had is very much a political attitude of making women feel that even if they're maybe not not the best musicians or not the best singers or just like are interested in music that they are still valid and they can still go out and do whatever they want and there'll be someone there who will listen and be be into it somewhere out there and yeah that you don't need to be intimidated the message of what the original idea of Riot Girl still lives on, even if the sound and different elements didn't. And there, there's things like the Glasgow Rock and Roll School for Girls um, that happens every year where they take girls from the ages of 8 to 16 and they teach them kind of self-confidence through music. Like they give singing lessons and different musical instrument lessons and over the course of the week they form bands and they write songs. Some of them have never ever played music ever in their lives. And then at the end of the week they do a showcase gig and they all perform live in front of loads of people. It's usually in the art school, the gig. Some of them start where they barely even talk to you. They're so, so shy. And then they go out on stage and they take the mic off the mic stand and they're shouting and singing their own songs and it's it's a really cool thing and I think I volunteer at that and so does Ona who um, is the bassist in Braticus, my band. The volunteers who run that quite a lot identify with Riot Girl and use the politics and the idea and message of Riot Girl when we run that summer school. Uh, for me, I was very influenced from a young age by bands with girls in them or female singers. When I was seven years old, I was in my grand's living room and she had put Kerrang! TV on for me and I saw a Distillers music video and they've been my favourite band since then. And I grew up listening to things like Julia and the Licks, Juliet Lewis's band and the Donnas and things that weren't necessarily part of the Riot Girl movement or anything like that. But they were always very important to me growing up, even if there wasn't a political message attached to what they were doing, that just girls were out there. So then when I formed Braticus with Ona, it was never something that I thought, oh, I can't do it because I'm a girl. I know a lot of people said that they felt that, that it was a boy's kind of thing, but I never, ever felt like that because I'd always been around women in music and listened to bands with girls in them. So it never seemed like an issue to me. I don't know if things are better or worse because of Riot Girl, but I think it definitely had a big in- impact on certain people. And when I was about 13, I discovered the movement and it really did inspire me to to just get out there. And even if I wasn't that good a musician or anything, so and I'm sure it did that for a lot of people. So it maybe it helped keep the DIY aspect of punk alive for some people. Yeah, I think it was a good thing that it happened, even even if there were quite a lot of bad points to it as well. The The main downfalls and bad points of the Riot Girl movement were obviously the, the race thing that I mentioned earlier, uh, where they didn't make it inclusive enough for uh, women of colour. But I think also some people, they didn't even seem to want men as allies a lot of people used it as a way to be really angry at men, which I think is not good because then it it just d- dilutes the message of feminism and backs up the people who think 
that it's just a bunch of angry women who hate men. Because it was such a wide thing and it was any woman could be part of it, a lot of different opinions were put in as kind of people were like, oh, well, this is what I think, and under the Riot Girl banner. And so then there was a lot of opinions that maybe weren't as helpful and positive for the movement. But I think the positive aspects of the Riot Girl movement were, yeah, just empowering young women and it allowed them to have a good time and play music and express themselves and, yeah, meet other like-minded women and things like that. I think an important part of that overall, uh, what I got from her, was just the influence. Riot Girl was inspiring for a lot of people. If it's any, if it's any one thing, it's that's a positive. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a nice bit where uh, Brea says that you know some people have said, "Oh, this is a guy's thing." She's like, "I just never ever felt that." Yeah. And maybe that's not Riot Girl exclusively that, that achieved that, but it certainly played a part in in reinforcing that lack of doubt in her. Yeah, that's that's a, that's awesome. I think one of my, one really uh, interesting aspect of, of what Brea was saying as well. And it's maybe something I've kind of overlooked is that Riot Girl gets so much attention for being a feminist movement and doesn't necessarily get the attention it deserves for being a DIY movement. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. the amount that it did in terms of emboldening people who weren't bedroom shredders, who weren't mm-hmm. like Joe Satriani, you know, they were yeah. they were like people who just wanted to bang out a noise mm-hmm. or wanted to say something with some kind of like musical accompaniment such as how Bikini Kill started you know it's just like this is an art form I want to explore I don't need to be you know grade six on anything to feel entitled to explore it it's you know it's public domain let's go and see what what comes out and I think Riot Girl, along with many other people at the time um, helped create an environment that was very conducive to encouraging people to give voice to the ideas that they had whether or not they felt they were tooled up mm-hmm. enough um I, like brea was saying as well like I, it came out the, the the longer form of that that discussion we had in bits that um there was something of a jump in a generation it feels we're right girl like it seems like in the last five years there's been much more of a resurgence certainly mm. in, in glasgow especially yeah we have a lot of, of, of uh female fronted and female led and female mm. dominated bands also coming from a kind of very diy background and I'm not sure why there was a little bit of a dip in that prior. There was certainly a, a there was certainly a decade of math rock and kind of very heavily accented Scottish kind of indie rock dominated by boys. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, in the, in the last in the last wee while, we've had quite a number come to the surface. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that both uh, her and uh, and Anna they were both influenced or they both really like the Stillers, mm-hmm. which I think is a really a really cool point. Cells are very much of when I was growing up when I was like 16, 15, 16, you know. Um, I remember the second album, Singing Death House, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, it was the first time I'd ever seen like that aggressive kind of nature of like a woman in a band at that age, you know. The only stuff I was listening to was like fucking, as we've discussed, new metal and bits of like Nirvana and all that, you know what I mean? And, and pop punk. So it was really interesting that both Anna and, and Bria really into Stillers. And then they kind of f- faded away, and it's like you say, there's like a generational thing there, you know. There was like there was a whole 
pretty much it was quite barren for women being like popular like in punk bands and rock bands you know just generally I think probably maybe from like the mid 2000s until like very fairly recently you know yeah I mean the emo movement was very male dominated yeah you know sensitive male dominated to some extent if you yeah. take brand new out the road but um mm. male dominated and that, that's mm. kind of interesting because even though there was a sort of pushback against machismo it was a pushback that didn't extend to being particularly inclusive to women or at least yeah. from the outside absolutely and, and pop punk as well it's the exact same thing you know that whole mid 2000s up until now era is still very um, it might not be like you say it might not be macho but it's still very much Misogynistic. misogynistic sometimes yeah you know? fat, fat misogynist yeah. <laughs> um, I mean I think there's, there, there are some exceptions I mean, remember the band Kitty mm-hmm. I mean Kitty as much as they're a wee bit of an eye roll were uh, empowering a lot of women certainly in the, in the, the kind of new metal yeah, yeah. And they were very young as well yeah incredibly absolutely. young um, and I think like Queen Adrena uh, Katie Jane Garside I would love to revisit a Queen Adrena record in a later a later episode because I think Queen Adrena are a really really interesting band because Katie Jane Garside is like if Kate Bush got bit by a werewolf hmm. I mean she's just mental and she's fantastic like mm-hmm. totally fearless mm-hmm. Deeply intimidating. I haven't seen her live. I mean, really, like, wow, you know, three steps back and fantastic. I I actually recently watched a Katie Jane Garside interview with Paul Morley. I have seen that in the that early nineties. Wild, oh, it's it? so bad. <laughs> like it's so nice. It looks like a like brass eye or something. It looks like total satire of nineties late night. It's one of the worst talk shows I've ever oh, seen. Oh my god! Uh, for 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 anyone listening, go and look that up. Like Paul Morley and Katie Jane Garside interview. It is just horrendous <laughs> on almost every single level. His questions are just like, what? <laughs> yeah it's fucking unbelievable it's yeah yeah anyway uh, but and the, the donnas were another one and the donnas obviously got glossed up by their label you know, they, they, they got some investment and improved the product. But, I mean, Anna was saying that she wasn't fussing them prior to that, got got into them after that. And it is interesting, the impact that had. But, yeah, the, the, there were kind of slim pickings. But it does seem now the DIY impact of, of Right Girl is, is much more resonant within mm-hmm. the scene. Uh, the, there are a lot of young women in bands just now, and the, the music is very lo-fi. Again, it's very bootstrap. It's also really energizing. It's really energizing for the scene mm. as well. You know the 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 diversity that it injects the the difference of perspective, and then the kind of cross pollination that comes off it. You know where bands start pairing off and splitting up, and you end up with members of this working with members of that, and mm. so much interesting stuff can come out of that. And it's probably the best it's been as a result in a long time up here. I'm speaking about Glasgow because that's that's you know where I work within music, and that's where the most of these bands, most of the bands I hear are based, but. It it doesn't seem like it's it's the exception by any means. Um, I mean, it's probably worth before we move on. So we'll, we'll go on to just to go through these uh, records that we picked. But it's probably worth just mentioning that there are definitely some 
highlights for anyone that's not massively familiar with Riot Girl, taking a kind of straw poll of people that were interested in speaking about it but ultimately didn't. They kind of recommended thing uh, with Bikini Kill, who was thought Yeah 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 from 93, which is a split with Huggy Bear. Uh, Pussy Whipped in 93 uh, is my personal preference as well, which also has Rebel Girl on it. Um, Bratmobile had a record called Potty Mouth from 93, which is really good. Uh, Huggy Bear's album, or kind of compilation collection, uh, Taking the Rough with a Smooch from 93 is a, a really strong one. Heavens to Betsy, I have a record called Calculated from 94 that's good, but I'll be honest, I kind of prefer Heavens to Betsy on their live videos. <laughs> feel like there's something about it it's the the kind of compression of the live video it just really works it adds a lot of energy to it but they're definitely worth chasing up and team dresh um the kind of queer core band uh personal best v94 is really worth checking out as well um and i mean since then and we spoke about the gossip earlier on um they've got that's not what i need uh is it no that's not what i heard i think it's the name of their album from 2001 um, and they seem to kind of mark the start of that second wave, albeit it didn't really hit here for a while. There's also a band called Eraser Rata. Um, who, again, I'd personally like put them forward they've got a record called Other Animals also from 2001 and part of that second wave um, but yeah shall we go on and uh, pick apart these uh, three yeah we should classics. do this yeah potential vying classics yeah uh, well out of the records we've picked I think this is the best one Slater yeah, Kenny Dig Me Out <laughs> which it's just it crackles with that energy like a lot of lo-fi punk does from the from the 70s and, and the 80s which I really like although it's not lo-fi really It's very clear they took a lot of sound, uh, a lot of influence from 60s sort of garage, kind of rock music, garage, garage rock music. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's just full of bangers, really. Every single song is cracking. It's it does the, have a good sound. And it is the best record, I think. Well, it's the third album, record. It? The third record, yeah, I mean... It's like, uh, kind of not of like eight albums. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, they were pretty was the singer, prolific. What was, the, what was the bass, what the, the drummer called? Is it Jesse something? What's her name? Uh, Janet Weiss. Janet Weiss, yeah, she's a game changer. Mm-hmm. And she comes on on this record. It's her first record, and the, the band have been the same ever since. And she adds a whole new level of energy and, and playing to the record, which is, I think, is very, very good. No, you're right. I think. The yeah, I think the drumming really adds an energy to this. Absolutely, record. Yeah. I I didn't really know a huge amount of Slater Kenny, but you know I knew bits and bobs. Um, but actually, properly given you know the records, I'll listen. I mean, I need to maybe give the later ones more. Um, but this was the woods. Was, was, the woods is pretty good. Yeah.
There's been some good records, yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. absolutely. But I mean, this was one. Considering having really listened to the the previous two, this one just sounded. I don't know. It just had a really nice vibe to it. As I saw it slip Kenny at the Oran Moor in Glasgow, and it even you know somewhat later in their career, and still got it in a big way. They're mm-hmm. a really really good band. Um, they are a little bit like Marmite for some people because of uh, Corin Tucker's vocal. Yeah, I can see, um, but I can see the, that the, the tremolo mm. thing. Like, yeah. and I'll be honest, like she massively overuses it in some of their later stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some of the stuff in the woods that is really tough going. Mm-hmm. It's just that the warbled effect yeah. is just it's too much. Mm-hmm. I think um, "Dig Me Out" as an album, she gets that balance much, much better. Definitely, yeah. Um, and it doesn't override the songs because mm-hmm. it's that weird thing where mm-hmm. if you put a track on and all you can think of is. My God, that vocal's strange. Mm-hmm. It's kind of counterproductive. It's like, well, okay, well, you're not listening mm-hmm. to the actual tune now. Yeah. Um, I know Dig Me Out was a really personal album because, um, is it not, uh, Tucker and Brownstein were, up. were a couple. Yeah. And this is the album that is them discussing their breakup. It's about Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> <laughs> like writing records about the people in the band that you've you used to be in a relationship with. It's total Fleetwood Mac territory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a little bit more modern though, isn't it? But, yeah. so, um, <laughs> um, but, but uh, imagine that. I was thinking about it earlier on today when I was sitting... Uh, it was a very, very nice day today in Glasgow and I was sitting down by the Clyde listening to the, this record. Uh, it, was, it was lovely. Uh, and, and imagining what it's like to be a, in a lesbian relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not, just imagine what it's like to be in a band where like, you know the songs have been written about you. <laughs> Like, <laughs> that'd be horrible. It would add a certain <laughs> frisson to proceedings, I think. I, yeah, and then having to do a back and focus on those songs that you know yeah. about you. Oh, she's that, uh, yeah. po- popular uh, satire website, The Hard Times, recently did an excellent article about that, where it was female bass player in a band is trying to pretend that she doesn't know that the songs <laughs> the singer's written are all about. <laughs> But yeah, you know, apparently um, Carrie Brownstein was uh, pretty furious because Spin put this album into like, I think it was like their number 20 or 21 in like their top album, the top albums of the 90s. Mm-hmm. But Spin also at the time of this album wrote an article about uh, about the band, which included discussing Tucker and Brownstein's personal life and their and their, their romantic life. And um, Brownstein's parents didn't know. And so that was how she was outed was by that article and she was pretty nonplussed about it mm. which I guess is just another example of the, the right government oh, exactly. button, button up against the press yeah I know that a lot of people I mentioned it earlier on a lot of people see this as being the, the kind of end or signal in the end and to some extent of that first wave of Riot Girl yeah. and even though it never really properly di- disappeared because it just it marked like a bit of a commercial breakthrough you know it was like um, it's, it's had like 130,000 sales which is by no means a massive amount of sales by standards of the 90s but certainly by contemporary standards it's a lot mm-hmm. um, and certainly for bands in the Riot Girl scene it's definitely a lot mm-hmm. so I, th- I think there was a sense of Riot Girl starting to peak above the surface becoming less of an underground movement I mean I think um, Kathleen Hanna I'm not quite sure when it happened but she ended up 
in a relationship, a long term relationship, married to one of the Beastie Boys. He's still married, yeah. Yeah, still still together. And I think there was just a sense of that the the movement was starting to drift away from its rough and ready mm-hmm. roots. And there was a danger of it being co-opted somewhat, yeah. and so well, it seemed like it more like it wound down than it allowed itself to be co-opted. You know, in contrast mm-hmm. to grunge, and it's interesting that that as well because this this record came out in nineteen ninety seven, which is the same year that Bikini Kill split up. So you can kind of see that, like yeah. if, if if Kathleen Hanna is the figurehead, and by all accounts, particularly in the punk singer anyway, they, they talk about how she was really uncomfortable towards the end of being like, seen as the leader of a thing. Um, this record is definitely. I mean, it doesn't really talk as much about hugely feminist issues, you know, because it's pretty much a relationship breakup record. Yeah, it's quite a personal record mm-hmm. rather than political. Yeah. And I think it does it does drift more towards the personal from the political. I think even like um, Kathleen Hanna's own output since then, I mean, the stuff by La Tigre was, um, yeah, it, it did have political content, but there was also more of a kind of feel good vibe to it. Mm. She even talks about that in The Punk Singer as well. And yeah, and then like the Julie Ruin, I think it starts to become more about the personal and the political. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit it never jettisons it entirely. I think that would be sort of impossible given the personality yeah. of the woman and the people behind it. But yeah, there there is a sense that it was on the wane or that they were allowing it to, to just sort of tail off. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to the, the zine culture at that time as well, because certainly the punk and the and zine culture seemed... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, no, that's that's my point. The zine culture started to fade out because of the internet, because of technology. I mean, mm-hmm. 97, 98, 99 was when the internet was starting to, to appear, really. I mean... Is there not a thing... I th- I'm pretty sure there's a thing in The Punk Singer, right, where a guy... is There's a news broadcast that's about Kathleen Hanna getting punched in the face by Courtney Love, and he's talking about it, how it was reported first online. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was like the little end of like nineteen ninety six would have been some of that ninety five ninety six. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the first story ever <laughs> broken online. Which <laughs> is <just> weird. <laughs> I mean, I mean, be honest though, who's who's currently love not punched at this point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think this is a great show. I don't think necessarily all the way through the album it it stays entirely strong. I think that's actually a problem with a lot of the right girl records. There's a little bit of a quality control thing, but it's 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 DIY. That's kind of why. Mm. I think there's some really, really good moments. And there's certainly some amazing moments. This record starts, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the first 15 minutes or so are tremendous. And I, I think it, it lags a little bit, loses its way slightly. Um, and I think that's the case with a lot of those bands. Um, I think they had some great moments and great bursts of creativity, mm-hmm. but they weren't always able to maintain it. Yeah. And ultimately, when we were trying to pick these records, I think kind of segueing from that into like mine and David's choices, you're trying to pick the best stuff, the best output, and the output that's had the longest lasting effect. Mm-hmm. I didn't just want to pick something and be insincere about it, uh, the way I had to with New Metal. <laughs> I think. See, what I think. I think of the records that we've picked. Always up. getting a oh, dig wait in. a minute, David needs to get this off his chest. <laughs> oh no, 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 it's just always there with the new metal digs. Fine. I think of the records we've picked. I think digs this, is me per- out. this is perhaps the most timeless of them in terms of sound. I don't agree. No, I no. So maybe talk about L Seven. Yeah, please. So before like, we move on, on, I just want to talk that. about production on this as well. It's okay, brilliant. Sorry. It's yeah, the production brilliant. is great. Uh-huh. Is that you talking about it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the production is yeah. great. Because like the. the <laughs> 
Yeah. If you compare it to production L7, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm going for Bricks Are Heavy. Yeah, so L7, I mean, I kind of wanted to declare that I don't particularly have a horse in this race. (laughs) (laughs) Is this your new metal? Yeah, pretty much. But I knew L7 and I I knew this record. I think I had it on cassette uh, a long time ago. The first time I heard um, Pretend We're Dead, it was on a cassette. It was a compilation album uh, of... The Gladiators. <laughs> as if in the you, TV show. As in the ITV Primetime Saturday TV wow. show. Holy shit. Uh, so it had the Gladiators on the front and it was music inspired by or included. I don't think this was I, inspired by well, the Gladiators. Exactly, I know. <laughs> so, um, but it's interesting that, you know, something as commercial as that was where I found L7. I suppose that's what this album is. It's did, not... Did, did Jet or Lightning ever pull out her tampon and throw it at the crowd? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And then I also heard about that. I remember reading Kerrang! and reading about Rock's most shocking moments. And yeah, yeah. Uh, when Danita Sparks pulled out... Danita uh, Sparks is mad as a box of badges. Exactly. <laughs> when she fucking brilliant. Like, she, I mean, she's quite often in shocking moments in Rock because she pulled out her tampon. Uh, and threw it into the crowd. Because the uh, crowd were being dicks. Fuck exactly. <laughs> and then also on the word, she just uh, scattered herself. Yep. <laughs> all right, all right. So yeah. can I be honest with this, right? So uh-huh. I remember that, right? And I used to kind of like wait till my folks would close my door and watch watch the word and, uh-huh. you know, see Oliver Reed and go, but if Oliver Reed's famous for that, why can't my dad be famous for that? And just <laughs> <laughs> but um, I remember when L7 were on the word and I'm in bed and I'm watching it on this wee square TV and the thing was kind of burnt out because it was an old TV. Hang on a sec, so this is 1992 and you've got two TVs in your house? Fuck. Was it 92 that was on 91? That's so the record came out in 1992. Yeah, it was 92. So. 92. Either way, you yeah. had two TVs so, in your house. Yeah, I was 11. Yeah, that's fucking Shit. mental, mate. And um, <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, I'm watching it and Danita Sparks is just, you know, she's playing away and I'm like, why is she wearing furry pants? <laughs> <laughs> And I'm watching it, and I'm like, I, I, I don't really get this music. I like it, kind of, but why is she wearing furry pants, and why does everybody look so shocked? And I didn't really understand what furry pants were. Um, yeah, so there you go. Just confessional moment. Innocent Mr. Kusak. Yeah, into the the brain of a pubescent. Yeah. Was that the episode that Oliver Reed was also on? Because that is a know. fucking car crash of TV. <laughs> like, never the word regularly that. was car crash of TV. Like that was its thing. Yeah, <laughs> Terry Christian. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's. They have some legendary moments. I actually saw L Seven like three weeks ago or so mm. in Glasgow. Uh, they played at the garage, and um, D Placus, the drummer, broke her arm twelve hours before their flight. <laughs> so they phoned ahead and got the drummer or one of the drummers, a female drummer from uh, Adam and the Ants, to fill in. And the girl whose name totally escapes me and a beg your pardon for that she had one practice and then had to play at Donington <laughs> that's impressive that is incredible right so yeah so we saw them and Dee Placis is at the back of the stage and her stookie wasn't like a normal stookie it was up in a kind of like seven shape 
almost like, funnily yeah. enough and uh, and so she, but she had to sing all the backing vocals so she was just standing at the back of the stage with a neon <laughs> orange goosenecked Stuckey singing backing vocals and just waving at everybody quite cheerily uh, while this other girl had like the fear of fucking death in her eyes <laughs> trying to remember all these songs with one practice to our two listeners in Costa Rica um, a Stuckey is a cast yeah 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 a Stuckey is a cast like a, a plaster cast on your arm to help it heal but the gig was Fantastic man, they, 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 they've still got it. I mean, okay, the, the drummer was up against it, and they, but they didn't cancel. They did it, and it was it was badass. And Denita Sparks is still terrifying and awesome in equal measure. Of course, uh, she, was, ask, she, she was she was raffled off in the in, a, oh, in yeah. Yeah, that, that was yeah. Plakis, was it not? Yeah, Deepakis was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They raffled off a, a night with Deepakis. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, so people get really sniffy about L7 in the ca- in the sense of the the context of Riot Girl, and I think it's really really worth mentioning um, that L7 are from Los, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, and they're considered to be a lot more metal mm-hmm. and a lot more kind of like industry punky grungy, punky grungy. Has come out slashed in it, which is basically a major label. Yeah, part of yeah. Vinyl, so. And, and and so therefore there was a bit of a, a lesser political content. There were very strong women, and they sang about sexuality and they sang about uh, issues that were tangential to that but they weren't directly political necessarily and they certainly weren't involved in zine culture however by the same token i think david's totally bang on with this suggestion because l7 for example set up the rock for choice festivals Mm -hmm. which ran for 10 years in hollywood Mm -hmm. had like nirvana soundgarden fugazi as well as people like Joan Jett, like any number of so they were that was a pro-choice women's group Uh, so it's a a set up after you know the rise of evangelical right and anti-choice exactly. things in the late eighties, yeah. Reagan era, overtly, political. which is fucking unbelievably uh, still a thing now. Yeah, absolutely. Have, you know. And it, it was a statement then; and it's still a statement now. Yeah. And it was a it was a an a high profile and tangible uh, uh, political activity that was not only publicising an issue but was raising money uh, for for causes. And I think that's. You know, they might not have been part of the Riot Girl movement, but they were extremely outspoken in their own way and extremely confrontational in their own way, extremely empowered in their own way, and goddamn intimidating. Like, really intimidating as a band. Like, really, like, full-on, spitty, snotty, punk rock band, albeit with that touch of And they of inspired band. a lot of... You know, because they were more mainstream, you know, yeah. they were that more visible side of the whole um, movement. So it was... Yeah, it was just an interesting one. It's crazy some of the bands they toured with, by the way, as well. I don't know if you saw the list, but they've toured with, like, obviously Faith No More, Guar, Bad Religion, Marilyn Manson, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Beastie Boys, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like, they were, like, high-profile band. Yeah. And had some absolute bangers of songs. Well, that's what... There's a few bangers on this. Yeah, there's a few... I think of all their albums, this is the one that is gets the mix of straightforward production you know, there's no messing about with this production, and I know a lot of the albums that I like, I talk about dynamics and a sort of organic sound. This doesn't have that. This is just like, oh, here's our distorted guitar sound, here's our drum sound, here's our vocal sound, this is it for the album. <laughs> but it totally fucking works, because these songs are just straightforward punk rock songs. You know, pretend that we're dead. Mark, you've been saying you've had that in your head, head all day. Because yeah. it is a fucking really catchy mm-hmm. pop punk rock I mean, song. that's... That, you know, like, Rebel Girl is the kind of more DIY 
pretend pretend we're dead. Like yeah. it's it's just a big simple anthem like huge sing along and having seen it just weeks ago it's still it's just a brilliant song. But it's then, got that know, like, vibe as well, you know. But then you know I I, I really like Diet Pill. It's got this like really slow it's mean yeah it's fucking you know sludgy and again that's the political feminist aspect of it talking about you know like i mean l7 are covered in little political moments like the, the beauty process and diet pill there's all these nods and references to what it is to be a woman in contemporary western society and be sold these ideals yeah and, and they they that is their take on it that is their angle and it's i think it's a really valid one but they released three singles from this uh pretend we're dead everglade and monster and they all got in the top 40 in the Everglades uk Everglade is a beast. Yeah, Everglade's a great track. And they all got in the top 40 in the UK. And I know singles now are very different to singles then, but can you imagine a female-fronted angry rock band like all, this all female heavy angry exactly rock band. getting into daytime airplay in the uk charts now it just wouldn't happen because yeah it's not because the bands aren't there but you know the corporate uh, music machinery wouldn't allow something like well, this to happen anymore yeah it'd be too it'd be too difficult to control it and um, what well, it, it's interesting you say that though because like they i uh, read some coverage of this album and it was described as meeting the marketplace halfway like getting that perfect balance between commerciality and spit and snot and you know punk aesthetic um don't get that and that was partly why it did so well like zell seven did what the riot girl bands wouldn't do they wouldn't engage with that side of things in fact they were they were opposed to it they certainly weren't they were <laughs> a media blackout you know mm. and i think that meeting the marketplace halfway thing is is, is kind of i think quite a, quite a good summation of it mm. i do think when i listen to see because of vig's involvement and like you were saying about the production aspect of it I wonder what Nevermind would have sounded like without Andy Wallace getting involved and whether it might have been closer to this. Because Andy Wallace completely overhauled Nevermind. Yeah. But it seemed like Nevermind was coming from a sort of similar place. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe with slightly more variation if you include things like Polly mm-hmm. and something in the way. But I do think that without Wallace's massive levels of production, it could have been a little bit more, like Dave says, these are our tones, these are the songs, here you go, let's mm-hmm. go. And... It could have been pretty interesting. I mean, I think personally for me, I hate the production on this record. I think everything apart from the vocals sounds completely fake. Drums sound like they're a drum machine. Um, the guitars sound literally sound like they've been DI'd in the fucking desk with a distortion pedal. And I just, I yeah, I mean, there, there could well be some of that because Butch Vig had obviously DI'd guitars from Nirvana as well. So there could be a mix of like amped and DI'd, and that might be where you're hearing that kind of dryness, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, there's not much bass on this record. Yeah, that turns me off it. it's not a record that I would go back to and listen to a lot but you know the last few days I've been listening to it in my headphones uh, walking around town and I've enjoyed it yeah 
it's uh, it's the most successful album. Mm. It's a I think it's a pretty strong album. It's a good walking yeah. album. Yeah, I will say actually, probably my favorite L Seven track though is the song Shove, which is from the album prior to this. Smell the magic. <laughs> It's a fucking brilliant title. Mm-hmm. I used to have a Smell the Magic t-shirt that was given by my friend's big sister. <laughs> and bearing in mind, I was quite a young teenager at the time, like 14 years old or something like that. And I was walking about with this black t-shirt that had a woman in red crotchless pants shoving a guy's face <laughs> <laughs> in her pubic hair uh, and just said in neon green, like glow-in-the-dark mm-hmm. letters, Smell the Magic. Mm-hmm. My mum fucking loved that t-shirt, and weirdly, that t-shirt just went missing one time when it was when right. it was getting washed. Sword. Don't it's know what happened fun. to that. That's weird. That so, but yeah. Anyway, I I, I think it's a great album, and you didn't mention Wargasm or Shitlist, which are amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's shit full of really great shit tracks, and, and Shitlist is probably the one to talk about because my first real exposure to L Seven after that hairy pants thing was. <laughs> When Natural Born Killers came out and mm-hmm. Trent Reznor was curating oh. the soundtrack and he, he put shitless in that. They, they, they finished the show with that. It was, whoa, it was fucking massive. You know, people were just losing their minds for it. And Wargasm as well. Again, another fucking brilliant play on mm-hmm. words. Given the femininity, the sexuality of the band, it's just like... Yeah, I, I'm really. This isn't my choice, but I'm fucking. I'm really big on this one, and I think it's a really good one. Great. Um, but so, what is your choice? Talking about spitty, snotty, fucking nasty, bad-tempered, mm-hmm. um, all-female bands, uh, Babes in Toyland. The band that should have been mentioned about 100 times in that Kathleen Hanna documentary and about 20 times in the um, history of Riot Girl documentary and just weren't. Um, and they were from Minneapolis from like the late 80s, like 87. Uh, it was uh, Cap Yelland and Laurie Bar- uh, Barbero. Um, I think there was a drummer that was replaced by Maureen Herman for, for this record. Uh, the couple other albums, uh, there was one called Spanking Machine in, in uh, 1990, and there was one after this called Nemesis Sisters. And they actually reunited fairly recently. To be fair to Kathleen Hanna, she gives a lot of credit to Babes in Toyland personally. Like She's spoken out about how they deserve more recognition. Um, she was a big fan of them. They, they were largely Cap Yelland, um, is the person who pioneered what's called Kinder Whore, and Kinder Whore is what I think... I mean, let's be honest, Courtney Love likes to borrow. Kinder Whore is the look that Courtney Love sort of, like, made famous. We were, like, wearing, like, baby doll dresses and bows, but really raggedy with your makeup running, torn tights and kind of putting your knees together and kicking your heels out. And Cap Yelland was doing that in the late 80s, uh, with, especially with this kind of black and white dress thing that she used to wear a lot and became, like, a really uh, signature look for her. Yeah, and... Fontenelle uh, is the album I chose, which is their second album. Uh, it was on Reprise. Uh, it was like a major label debut for them. It blows my fucking mind that you can release an album like this on a major label. If you listen to Fontenelle and it's so 
dirty and nasty and mean-spirited and fucking totally uncompromising. It's just really doesn't at any point even pretend like it's going to be commercial. It doesn't even have a pretend we're dead on it. It doesn't even have a fucking rebel girl on it. It's good. It's just really fucking just just not playing the game whatsoever. It's punk as fuck. It's punk yeah. as fuck. It really is. Absolutely staggering that, that that they were they were releasing this on a. It, to me, it stands journey. next to L Seven more than it stands next to I would anything say so. else. But it's far rawer and you know it doesn't have that butch fig production, yeah. and it just sounds fucking dirty. As much closer to being a grunge record from in, in the in the mud honey sense, I would say than anything else. Um, yeah, it starts um, off with fucking Bruce Violet, which is just an amazing song. Opening all the all three of these records start off with absolute peaches of songs, man. Yeah, it's amazing. See, um, there's a tie in here because the song Violet um, by Hole. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Violet are sort of uh, the rumor has it that they're sort of messaging each other, if you will. And Courtney Love had said that she'd originally played or auditioned for Babes in Toyland. Mm-hmm. She didn't. She actually lived with Laurie Barbero mm-hmm. for a while, or at least Cap Yellen says she didn't. They they, they disagree on it, as you can expect. Um, but there's a lot of like, yeah, there's a lot of crossover in the mythology and the mystique behind these. And Kath, uh, Cap Yelland was reasonably co- uh, close to Kurt as well, I believe. And yeah, they just seem to have been like dingy. There's a, a reasonably well-known journalist called Richie Unterberger, I think that's how they pronounce his name, who'd accused uh, or who'd referred to Babes in Toyland as something of a joke band, saying that they'd been eclipsed by Hole's superior writing. I'll be honest, if you listen to Pretty on the Inside, the, the, the first Hole album, I don't think it's as good as this at all. So, I, I mean, I think in that respect, he's wrong. I mean, I do think Hole massively stepped it up for Live Through This. And there was a lot of people involved in that process and, you know, perspectives vary as to, to what extent. But I, I think this is an extremely strong album. I think the guy's completely missing the mark with that. The album's produced by uh, Cap Yelland and Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth. They toured with Sonic Youth and it's got a really... It's got that real, like, Sonic Youth, like, we don't give a fuck how this actually sounds mm-hmm. kind of vibe about it as well, which is partly why it is uncomfortable. It doesn't translate particularly well on headphones now because we're so used to, like, saturation and maximum compression and high volume, and it's dirgy. It's quite dark as an album. It doesn't, I like that about it. It doesn't have a lot of top mm-hmm. end on it. Mm-hmm. Fuck me, man. It's, it's, it's pretty fucking grim. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bru- Bruce Violet is just fucking brilliant. I'm on the same page as you there. And that, that was probably their best known song. I, I also loved Right Now. Starting with the, you know, the Tom Rolls. Mm-hmm. And she's got that horrendous, like, yeah, that she yeah. does where she's just, I mean, she screams. There's so many points in this album where she's just... Well, I think just her vocal delivery through that out the album is fucking ridiculous yeah it's got everything her voice is mental like yeah it, it she is. can just go from you know sounding like a baby to sounding like 
Absolute Satan. Yeah, <laughs> she but sounds yeah. unhinged at all the, at all points. No yeah. matter how her voice sounds, and that song won't tell. Amazing. Does the baby voice? Uh, she's like, yeah, I like like kind of whispering into the microphone, mm. but then the chorus to it is just bellowed, like mm-hmm. actually not even shouted, but bellowed. And it, it does like it's, it's, it goes between so many extremes. Um, there's some, there's even some like really nice kind of melancholy, chorusy bits in some of them. And uh, is it song Gone, the last one where she's like there's stuff getting smashed in mm-hmm. the background, mm-hmm. but the singing on it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Like really really good. The whole album as well, it's only like 37 minutes long, it's perfect for the style of music it is, it just totally doesn't overstay its welcome at any point. None of these albums are particularly long either. No, no, no. They're, yeah, all, they're, they're all about 30, succinct. 35 minutes I think. Um, I think the song Handsome and Gretel is one of my favourites. I think it was the first one I heard, actually. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty well known one off of this, and it's just, just their approach to songwriting is just totally unconcerned with commercial, mm-hmm. <laughs> like interests at this point, and that's why I can't quite get my head around how they ended up. Uh, no, I, no, that's not true. I can understand in the context of the time where money was being thrown at alternative bands, but it um, it is mind blown to think about that in the light of today, mm-hmm. a band like this ever getting fucking looked at by yeah. a major label to anything like this extent um, one thing I, I think just before we, we close up there was an interesting point you made earlier on and just going back to your Joan Jett point and the, and the runaways and the kind of whole thing about that so the the drummer in Babes in Toyland Maureen Herman was actually uh, sorry uh, the bassist sorry Maureen Herman was uh, kicked out for an article she'd written on a, a website called Boing Boing mm. um, and her article was discussing um, the Jackie Fox of the Runaways rape at the hands of Kim Foley in 75 when the, the Runaways were on tour and Jackie Fox saying that for example Joan Jett had seen it or was aware of it but denied having witnessed it Laurie Barbero had been producing albums for Black Heart mm. which is Joan Jett's label and Maureen Herman's adamant that the, the reason she got fired was because she jeopardised uh, Barbero's future income via that record label and that pressure was brought to bear you really hope that's not the case, because mm-hmm. that would be pretty distasteful. Would be very distasteful if it was. That's that's still the one cloud that hangs over this band for me, and that's that's only re- reason fairly recently that that's been the case. But um, yeah, it's it's, it's strange uh, how it fits in with that. But yeah, on the whole, on the whole, I, mean, I just I love the totally uncut. I mean, the covers unsettling with a little doll. The lyrics are fucking brutal. Like, was it? You're dead meat, motherfucker. You don't try to rape a goddess. There's um yeah, I love that line. Fucking <laughs> hell. There's one. Uh, she was this girl. Her thoughts and motions in a whirl. Uh, she was pretty quick. Found her stick. Filled it thick with black sugar shit. Like fucking hell, man. Honestly, it's just like, it's like really dirty, nasty, fucking pissed off stuff. And it sums up so much 
that I associate with Riot Girl, yet to me Riot Girl didn't produce enough albums like this. It didn't have mm-hmm. enough output that had this level of quality and a, and consistency throughout. Yeah, they were they were a bit too patchy, albeit. I do accept that Babes in Toyland are not as overtly political, even as L7. They don't have yeah. know, the rock for choice. But they do have a hell of a lot about their sexuality, about rape, about perceptions of women, expectations of women, um, about being a woman that's breaking out of those categories. I think they tick a lot of the boxes, and they were from the same area. They played a huge part, even by Kathleen Hanna's admission, in the genesis of a lot of the bands in that scene. And yet they have been omitted from a lot of the histories and I think it's really sad and so one of the reasons I wanted to pick them rather than actually just going for an out and out Riot Girl record is because I think Babes in Toyland deserve more credit for, for what they helped helped put into effect not put into effect but helped put into effect mm-hmm. they were right there in the heart of that and they were hugely influential and you know Courtney Love hated Cap Yelland as well so she should have been friends with Kelly Nana exactly. I mean mm-hmm. nah but I mean I, I just think they're they're really overlooked, and mm. I think it's such a good record. And I, I don't think any of these actually are bad records. Yeah, it's funny talking about the movement and the genre, and maybe discussing that it isn't actually as strong musically. But then I think these three records overall are actually really really strong. Absolutely, and I so. think the th- the thing to get the benefit of Right Girl, a bit like um, Brea was saying in her interview, you almost have to widen your consideration of what is Right Girl, because I think to go by the, the, the orthodoxy, the, the narrow, you know, Olympia, uh, Portlandia type thing, it's too restrictive. It doesn't give you the full picture of the of the effect it had on women in bands, the effect or, or, or the part it played within a movement, not in a, not just being a movement of itself i think right girl was more more effective as part of a wider movement amongst female musicians at the time and right girl was yes it was like the yoke if you will but there was a hell of a lot else yeah going on around it that was not quite as tightly associated with each other but hugely influential not least of all bands like hole who were i mean the number of women that must have got into rock music because of Courtney Love, whatever you say about Courtney Love, is massive. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I, I do feel you get the best at Riot Girl, the the broader your interpretation of it. Um, because too narrow an interpretation and you can see where the infighting came from, you can see all the negatives of it, you can see how this group didn't like that group and that group didn't like allies like Ian Mackay and you're just like, and you get you get too caught up in the bullshit of it. But when you pull out of it, you start to see more of the positives and the lasting effects and the bands we have now and the people that were around it. And you can imagine the CD collections of the girls that had the Right Girl records, but you can imagine the other ones that were on those shelves as well, the PJ Harveys mm. and the L7s and and the Pixies and the Sonic Youths and, and like strong and influential women in music that just weren't part of this smaller movement. I think the movement was overall a positive thing. I really do. But not without some some real caveats within that and I think there were lessons that could be learned from it especially as regards the infighting for future movements but yeah I mean ah, it's been fun to do this one yeah no it's been but an ed- it's been an education thing, the uh-huh. Nexus. Nexus oh okay so we have jingle jingle hang jingle. on hang on hang on here
wonderful as always. It's like your favourite one. Yeah, that's I've changed it every time. Yeah, I know. Uh, so this one, what this, one's, this one's a twofer. Right, we'll have to do each one quickly. So, uh, B. Island was in a band with, Ho- with Courtney Love, who was, al- who, were also the- who was also in the same band called Sugar Baby Doll with Jennifer Finch. Mm-hmm. Okay, give me so, that. So, by association, you know, you get from Courtney Love, you get to Nirvana, you get to Dave Grohl. Yeah, that's that's it's more two jumps. I mean, I think Cap Yelland was friends with Kurt Cobain. It's probably yeah. an easier jump. <laughs> and, and Jennifer Finch went out with... Um, when we Dave Grohl and Butch Vig produced Nevermind. So, I mean, there's so many. I don't think Butch Vig so produced this. He produced L7, didn't he? I got yeah, L7. So, L7, that's that. That's Jennifer Flatts. I'm saying, like, they're all, they're, all, they're all combined together. I've got another one for L7. So, what right? about we haven't got Slater Kinney yet? Also, John Goodmanson it's a, uh, produced uh, Dig Me Out. He also produced some Bikini Kill records. And Dave Grohl went out with Catherine Hanna and Kurt Cobain went out with Toby Vale. Toby Vale, yeah. So. Um, it's all connected, man. It's all, it's all connected. Plus, they were all probably pals. Yeah, probably, and, almost and certainly all Kathleen pals. Kathleen Hanna was the person who spray painted uh, Smells like Kurt Teen Smells Like Teen Spirit mm-hmm. on a wall, and Kurt didn't know that that was a female deodorant, and that's where Smells Like Teen Spirit got its name. So, yep. Kathleen Hanna was responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Fair play to her. Not Nirvana's best song, but it's no. not her fault. Um, also, by the way, by means of a, a second option, L7 released a sort of semi serious satirical. Mini documentary called L7 The Beauty Process, which was directed by Chris Novoselic oh, wow. of Nirvana. So that is all connected. So we put the exit music here. Yep. Good mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and that Great. brings us to the end. Yeah, so go and vote for your favorite of these three. Yeah, yeah, but I would strongly suggest if you've enjoyed any of what we said that you, you check out all three because all three are really strong choices. And uh, any number of the bands that were mentioned earlier on by both ourselves and uh, Brea Quinn and Anna Goldthorpe, thank you very much to both of them. Just one final word as we said. We would have loved to have had more female voices on this episode. We really, really did try for weeks and it was just getting ridiculous. Um, so we just had to bite the bullet and, and go to record. We really hope if you're interested in talking about any of this stuff, you'll maybe let us know because it's good to know of people that we can get in touch with who are willing to even do a Skype interview. If you have any opinions on it, as we said, a little vlog or some comments, we'd really love as much input as possible from anything that isn't just hetero white males with pastel coloured t-shirts yeah yeah. and our next mixtape will be the best of Britpop oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck yourself Jesus. no it definitely won't <laughs> probably gonna be pop punk yeah. we'll do a we'll do a mixtape we'll do another mixtape we will return at some point soon yeah. we'll let you know what it's gonna be once we decide because there are frankly too many options but we've got a couple of fun ideas up our sleeves and we're also in the process of putting together uh, another live mixtape uh, for later in the summer so Ooh, hopefully hey. hopefully hey. Uh, the the masses that emerged for the last one will make it and bring a couple of their friends cool um, thanks for listening thanks guys that was fun okay thanks bye Great.